This episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is brought to you by Yarn. Now through these challenging times of social distancing that we currently face, have you found yourself running out of shows that you can binge? Then why not check out some of the hit series that the Yarn app has to offer? Now the format of Yarn is a little different than a traditional TV series. Just imagine if you could binge your favourite series and characters through text interactions right through your own phone, almost making it real and very addicting, yeah? Well, Yarn is an interactive storytelling app where stories are told as though they are text messages between the main characters. Genres range from romance to comedy, horror to action and much more. It also offers video and audio only episodes to watch or listen to on your phone in a few minutes. And millions of people have already binged some of Yarn's top series such as Mystery Dog, Modern Dating and Haunted Camper to name but a few, so why not see for yourself? Tap through the most addictive and immersive stories today only on Yarn. Trust me, with over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must play. Download Yarn for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Y-A-R-N. Download it today to watch, read and listen to all your favourite fiction stories. From steamy to horror, Yarn has it all. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes back to a brand new series, series number 6 now, where like the renegade master I'm back once again of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Still the premier North Wales spare room based true crime show that seeks out to recount those tales of the macabre that you may be unfamiliar with, that you may not even believe, from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. And I'm still Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I've still got my mostly useless black and white helper peaks. Though he's happy just being eye candy. You guys are still you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts that mean that I'm not talking to myself in my spare room each week. It's fantastic as ever being back with you after the series break. Your continued support means the world. And I'm hoping that as you're tuning in, then each of you and yours are all good and you're all well. See, some things don't change, do they? So before I begin, I want to thank kindly everyone who passed on messages of sympathy to me following me revealing in the Series 5 review that I was dedicating the series to my late dad, JD, who I lost just before Christmas. I had some lovely thoughts from people that meant the absolute world to me, as well as several very kind and generous donations from many for the show fundraiser for Macmillan Cancer Support that I started at the onset of the year, and that I'm going to run for several months here through The Enthusiast. 
Now I'm pleased to say that we're almost at half the total I'd initially set as a target to raise, but I may increase this target as the support comes in. It's something that helped my dad and my family so much through his illness. I honestly can't stress enough how brilliant Macmillan are, and it's something that sadly touches all of us at some point. So any donations, even any shares of the fundraiser, will be so much appreciated guys. The details should you wish to support or share can be found in the episode show notes. Now this has meant that I've been busier than usual with personal stuff in my series break, but as I've said on previous occasions, sometimes the show is a very welcome distraction for me, and I found that preparing this new series has been one of those. Now I'm not going to bugger about with the format at all really, as as we go on to the series 6, it works very very well for me as it is, so I'll be bringing you a couple of multi-parters, I'll be chucking a couple of listener episodes in there, we'll have the Monsters Of episodes, plus this series I'm introducing something called a True Crime Holiday, where I break from the sole UK coverage of cases, and I'll choose one to cover from a different country. Although I will stick to the obscure and unfamiliar, so you're not going to see me do the Night Stalker or anything like that. I do have the series tentatively plotted out already, although it probably won't run true to the plan, and I've either researched or obtained material for several of the initial episodes of Series 6, plus of course the Patreon episodes, so we're good to go for a bit here. On that note, and I know it's very very much catch-up time here now, but big thanks are going out to Hannah Smith, Mia Vilk, Rosie Dempster, Barry O'Sullivan, Freya Bennett, Susan Scott, Jenny Charter, Sean Duffy, Ginger and Charm, Jessica Frankham, Christine Phillips, Donna Barnard, Tom Bertles, Lucy Clark, Lizette Austin, Kim Durkino, Abby Armstrong, Pamela Murphy, Nicola Long, Matt Stapleton, Rob Ford, Kelly Morrissey, who have all Patreon supported the show during the series break. Plus Kay Myers, Cindy Grythe, Kathy Woods, Ashley Shannon, Jennifer Venn, Therese Daly, Troy Tempest, but there's no mention of Aquamarina with it, but never mind, and Al- Alona, Alona, Alona Murphy, I think that's how you pronounce it anyway, who've all opted to annually Patreon support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there also. And I did that deliberately with Alona because she's a very, very good friend of mine. You guys are all absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope that you've had a chance to catch up with the bonus episodes that you get access to as a supporter. Plus the stuff that's been sent out to some of you that's all arrived following the Christmas backlog and the bloody apocalypse or Armageddon or whatever you want to call it and all that. Now there will of course be the latest bonus Patreon episode released before the end of the month as ever bonus episode number 37 and if you want to join these guys in hearing this one plus other unreleased episodes such as new year's evil angel from hell or operation magnesium to name but a few then to do so is a doddle you just head on over to the patreon site and seek out the true crime enthusiast podcast or there's an ever-present link within the episode show notes as always see it's like putting on a pair of old shoes for me this is just a couple of clicks a couple of quid and you'll be away like a belt-fed wombat and cool as the drool on a hound dog's tool listening to some extra enthusiast. So, for our opening tale of the sixth series, we head down to the city of Oxford, in the county of Oxfordshire in south-east England, and back to the late 1990s. Now Oxford, 
bit of a wiki stat here, the name of which stems from the word Oxenforder, which means a river ford where cattle can safely cross. I bet you'll all sleep better tonight knowing that, won't you? Oxford surely needs no introduction. It's home to the world's second oldest university. It's the place where coffee was first served in England and has the world's oldest botanical garden. It was the place where Sir Roger Bannister ran the first four-minute mile back in 1954. And notable people to hail from Oxford include the B.A. Baracus of Black Holes, Hawkers himself, British crime writer P.D. James, privileged waste of an orgasm and star of Made in Chelsea, Jamie Lang, most of Love Them or Loathe Them Radiohead, and personally I can't be arsed with anything after OK Computer that I've done, and the wife of the missing in action royal, Prince Edward, Sophie, the Countess of Wessex. See, some things don't change at all. Still the random usual bollocks stats. But we aren't here to discuss the high and mighty of Oxford and all that it has to offer. Much darker tones bring us here, of course. We head back first to August 1997 to learn of the events of a night of madness and barbarity that left a family destroyed beyond repair, the lives of several turned irreparably upside down, and two innocents dead, killed in the most horrific of circumstances. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events involving children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always folks, please use discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, it's bloody wonderful to be back with you, and please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the opening tale of the series, a case that I've broken up into two parts due to its complexity, and one that I've entitled, The Burning. The roads were fairly quiet as the two cars headed westwards on the M40 motorway towards the city of Oxford about an hour or so into the morning of Tuesday the 26th of August 1997, each filled with a mix of males and females, eight people in total, all of them friends and some of them even related. Each person in the vehicles knew at least that the reason they were heading to their destination wasn't a good one. This was no someone's knocking on the door postcode bloody lottery palaver or anything. Although some were later found to be more in the know of the exact reasons than others, shall we say. The 75 mile journey was one being made at the instigation of one of the individuals in the vehicle in particular. One who was much later to be described as, I quote, the driving force behind the whole events. And the consequences of that journey would leave so many lives shattered, it's impossible to tally up. After a lengthy mobile phone exchange during the journey between one of the passengers and her boyfriend, who was already in Oxford, eventually, just after 2.15am, the vehicles arrived and parked up in tandem behind an already waiting vehicle along lonely Cheney Lane in the Oxford suburb of Headington a tree-lined rural road about a mile and a half from the scene of their intended visit that morning. There was conversation outside the vehicles for some minutes between the drivers of each car and two of the passengers that had made the journey before each got back into their respective vehicles and the vehicle that had already been parked up drove off. After several minutes, there was again a brief mobile phone conversation, 
following which the two remaining vehicles set off slowly on the short journey to their intended destination. A street in the residential area of Cowley, where only a couple of minutes later, they'd arrived and parked up in the car park of a nearby public house, the former Philosopher and Firkin, on the corner of where the B480 Cowley Road intersects with Magdalen Road. It was a house in Magdalen Road, towards its end, that each vehicle had only shortly before this slowly driven past, a house that was pointed out to two of the occupants of the vehicle to the rear, by the passenger who had instigated the whole trip. The house, number 156, a mid-terrace property adjoining a general store, was in complete darkness, and parked there in the open pub car park only 50 yards away, the occupants of each vehicle had ample and unrestricted view as two of one of the vehicle's occupants got out of the rear, removed some items from the boot of the vehicle and made their way stealthily on foot towards the house. Just over a minute later, the two were pounding their way on foot back past both vehicles where they eventually leapt back in when the vehicle they'd travelled there in had stopped for them only a short distance away on a street off the Cowley Road and each vehicle then sped off, leaving behind them, in their wake, a mixture of flames and screams. Five minutes beforehand, most of the seven occupants who were present in number 156 that evening, members of the Khan Akhtar family, although I'll refer to them as Khan throughout the episodes, were each sound asleep the last two awake being 19-year-old student Nazmin Khan and her 15-year-old brother Majid, who had been awake looking through a family photo album together. Both had just headed upstairs to bed themselves and had lain down when they heard the front door letterbox clatter and a split second later heard a whooshing sound. Poking their heads out of their respective doors, they were met with the terrifying sight of the lower stairs and downstairs hall of the property ablaze, a strong smell of the petrol accelerant used still discernible over the smoke. Nazmin's screams were loud enough to wake the rest of the family, who with their escape route now cut off and flames spreading through the downstairs rooms, were forced to flee to the front upstairs bedroom to try to gain passage to safety through the upper window. One of the Khan daughters, 20-year-old Bilkees, later described the inferno. I looked outside the window and I saw the fire outside. A ball of fire came up the stairs and threw me back. I got burned on my right hand and my back. I tried to get my little sister, but I couldn't. I tried so hard. When the fire had taken effect, 45-year-old Mafuz Khan had been awakened by the blaze and with overpowering smoke filling the room, had leapt to safety through her bedroom window. With a mother's instinct to save her children, she was immediately attempting to head back into the now blazing building and there's footage on a link in the episode show notes that you can see the intensity of the blaze on for you to have a look at, but was held back by concerned neighbours who were by that time gathered on the street and preventing Mafuz from heading back into what would be almost certain death. Instead, she watched as first her daughter Nazmin got out through an upstairs window, followed by her younger sister Anise, who had first passed her own son, Mafuz's six-year-old grandson Keshan, to safety. 
Next out was older sister Bilkees, who was later to tell how she'd been bravely shepherded out of the window to safety first by her younger brother Majid, who was attempting to get to his eight-year-old sister Amun. When he appeared at the window moments later, he threw himself out and landed heavily in the front garden, fiercely ablaze about the head and body. Mafuz ran towards his son as he fell, attempting to break his fall, and then smothered him with her own body, severely burning herself in the process of extinguishing the flames that had taken hold of him. As she tended to her son, watched by the weeping, shell-shocked members of her family, it dawned on her with horror that there was only six of them stood there, and as the sirens beckoned ever closer, Mafuz began to scream. Because her youngest child, her eight-year-old daughter Anum, was still inside, and although Mafuz fought against neighbours to get back in, and neighbours themselves tried to enter, the inferno was just too fierce, and the fire had gutted the property within minutes. As police and the emergency services arrived, and firefighters began tackling the blaze, each member of the Khan family was taken to the John Radcliffe Hospital and treated for burns and the effects of smoke inhalation, whilst the gravely injured Majid was placed into a medically induced coma. He clung for life for two further days before succumbing to the horrific burns that he'd received and the fractured skull that he'd obtained on impact of landing. The pathetic remains of little Anum were found later that morning when the blaze had been extinguished, huddled against the radiator in her bedroom, burned almost beyond recognition. You don't even want to go there, do you? What absolute horror the real stuff nightmares are made of that, isn't it? Police launched a murder investigation immediately as it was established by fire investigators within mere minutes of the blaze being extinguished that this had been an arson attack. The centre petrol still hung heavily in the air and two empty half-litre bottles of Tango still containing traces of petrol and with holes pierced in the lids of each to act as a nozzle were discovered abandoned in a telephone box just off Magdalen Road. Now attacks such as this usually have a deeply personal motive behind them. Although they of course do exist, the random arsonist is rare. If you've been listening for a while, I'm sure you'll remember, way back at the end of series one of The Enthusiast, I covered what is probably the most celebrated case of these, certainly at least the one from the UK anyway, The Terrible Crimes of Peter Dinsdale, a wingnut who's more commonly known as Bruce Lee which he changed his name to in the late 1970s. The angle of the fire being a racial attack, bearing in mind that the Khan family were of Muslim faith, was quickly ruled out also, which left a personal motive, someone with a deep grudge against the family. And almost immediately, a look at the Khan family background brought to light information which soon suggested to police the prime suspects for the crime and the inquiry continued in this direction. Yet despite several people being arrested and interviewed under caution in the days and weeks following the blaze, from places as far afield as Stevenage, Letchworth, and even as far north as Sheffield, alibis that these people gave were on the surface corroborated by others, and no charges could be brought against any of them. That was, however, 
to change only a couple of months after the fatal fire. On the 11th of December 1997, just over three months after the blaze which had claimed the lives of Majid and Anum Khan, a 20-year-old man named Sunder Kutan was arrested for unspecified offences, but believed to be several counts of credit card fraud, in the town of Stevenage in Hertfordshire. Sundar was clearly a troubled soul as he was brought into the custody suite, and with little prompting, not only had he confessed to the offences that he had been arrested on suspicion of, but whilst being held in custody, had began talking to detectives about other, much more grave offences that he had information about. Offences that soon made them pick up the phone and liaise with their colleagues over at Thames Valley Police Headquarters in Kidlington. Acting as a result of this information, in a multi-force operation, arrests were made two days later in Sheffield, Letchworth and Oxford, resulting in six people being arraigned and two days later charged with the murders of 15-year-old Majid and 8-year-old Anum Khan and the attempted murder of the other five members of the Khan family. All six were then remanded to prison to await trial, which we shall hear about following a word from this week's sponsor of the show. This episode is brought to you once again by Best Fiends. In my downtime, when I'm not researching, writing or recording the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I still like to keep the grey matter going, but feel as though I'm doing something casual too, and I found Best Fiends to be the perfect thing for this. It's a colourful and fun puzzle strategy game that challenges you and makes you think about your moves two steps ahead, but it's also a casual game that anyone can play and enjoy and will find you wanting to play through the lands of minutiae, from its frozen hills to its mushroom valley, using and levelling up the cute and colourful little characters that you come across, such as Lapoleon, Moose, Bo and Brittle, just to name a few. Best Fiends will always feel slick and fresh due to its constant updates, and before you know it, you'll be as hooked on it as I am. I'm often there for ages thinking, I'll just do a level, and then I pass that one and I think, Oh, well, I'll get through that one now. I like that it does that, and I like that it makes me think about it too. For the times of social distancing that we currently face, it's a perfect way to stay in touch with friends that you can't see, as you can stay connected to them by playing against them online, or you can simply enjoy playing it by yourself. You don't even need to be connected online to enjoy Best Fiends. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. In the trial, which began in court number 9 of Birmingham Crown Court on Monday, October 5th, 1998, presided over by Mr Justice Jowett, the six accused, 18-year-old Alan Swanton of Southern Way, Letchworth, 18-year-old Thomas Liedel of Birds Hill, Letchworth, brothers Mohammed and Hak Nawaz, 21 and 31 respectively, of Ridge Road in Letchworth, 20-year-old Haroon Sharif of Moral Avenue in Oxford, and his girlfriend, 26-year-old Riaz Munshi of Fulwell Road in Sheffield each denied the counts of murder and attempted murder that were put to them. Opening the trial, 
Prosecuting counsel Julian Bourne QC told the court that the reason behind the fatal fire was a war of sorts between the Khan family and the Munshi family, specifically the girls of the Munshi family, 26-year-old Riaz and a younger sister, 21-year-old Fiaz Munshi. He told the court that the firebombing was the culmination of this bitter feud between the Khans, who strictly adhered to their Muslim values, and the rival family, the Munshis, who preferred to live a more westernised way of life. Mr Bourne added, There was plainly bad blood between some of the defendants and the Khan family. Fiaz Munshi herself, he told the court, would have joined the other six in the dock, but she'd fled to Pakistan just two days before each of the defendants was arrested. The court was told that the five men and one woman in the dock plotted to torch the Khan house in Magdalen Road in a trip that they'd coordinated by the use of mobile phones. Five of them on trial had travelled in two cars, along with two others who didn't face charges, from Stevenage in Hertfordshire to Oxford with their lethal weapons, petrol contained in a canister, and two tango bottles primed to spread accelerant, and two of these, Thomas Liedel, who was known as Eggy and Alan Swanton, were recruited to start the fire by the other four defendants. Mr Bourne told the court that Swanton and Leedle had been instructed to pour the inflammable liquid through the letterbox and light it once the Khan family had switched out their lights to go to bed and the house was in darkness. He went on, This was plainly a perfectly planned and carefully executed killing. You only have to look at the time it was done and how they'd waited until the house was in darkness. Why squirt petrol through someone's letterbox in the middle of the night when the family is asleep and set fire to it when all you want to do is give them a bit of a scare? Only two people were killed, but it could have been the whole lot. He then told the court the events of the fire as I described earlier, how Mafu's Khan, five of her children and her grandson had been in the house, most of them asleep, her husband Mohammed Khan away working a night shift at his job as a senior porter at the now-closed Radcliffe Infirmary at the time. How each had been awoken by the sound of the petrol igniting in a ball of flame, or the screams of family members, and the desperate attempts to flee from the only avenue of escape open to them, the upstairs windows of the terraced house, followed by the desperate attempts of Mafuz to regain access to the burning property to rescue her trapped children. Her police statement, given three days after the fire, was read out to the hushed courtroom, and which in part follows thus. I wanted to get to the front door to find out who may have set fire to the house, or if they were still there. I ran out onto Magdalen Road, but halfway into our front garden, a neighbour held me around the top of my body. The neighbour is a man who lives opposite, I don't know his name, but I recall him saying, don't go back in. I wanted to run back in through the front door. I saw the fire take hold then, and flames were visible all over the house. I saw several of my family members exit the house, all from the upstairs. They all came out of the same window. I can't remember the exact order in which they came out, but I do recall Anise putting Keshan through the window. The jury was then told how Mafuz attempted to save her youngest son Majid with her own body 
when he threw himself ablaze from an upstairs window of their burning home. She added, Majid was the last of them to jump out. He was covered in flames on his head and upper body. I wasn't able to break his fall as he hit the ground and he landed in the front garden. I was successful in putting the flames out and now have burns to my face and arms. It was obviously very traumatic. I recall the emergency services then arriving and us going to the John Radcliffe Hospital. I know my daughter Anum was killed in the fire and yesterday my son Majid died from his injuries. Don't know words, are there really? What on earth warrants such horror? Well, we'll get to that shortly. The court then heard that records of the phone calls, some 50 in total, made between the defendants on the evening to plot the arson attack, had been obtained by police from various phone network companies, with Mr Bourne adding, it may well be that the telephone users had no idea that their telephone calls could ultimately be brought in evidence and placed before the jury, as there seems to be no attempt to disguise them. A large number of these calls were made in the hours leading up to the murders from the defendant Haroon Sharif in Oxford to his girlfriend Riaz Munshi, which could be time-stamped and matched to different mobile phone masts so they corresponded with various stages of the journey the defendants had made from Stevenage to Oxford, and with the final one coming at 3.08am, almost the exact time of the fire. The jury heard that although this mobile phone data showed that Sharif was at his parents' home a mile away in Morel Avenue within a minute of the fire being started, he had still played what Mr Bourne described as a significant part in setting up the arson attack, because he'd acted as reconnaissance by watching the Khan household, then constantly phoning others, including Riaz Munchi, Mohammed and Hak Nawaz, to update them and ultimately letting them know when the Khans had switched off their lights to go to bed. In fact, he'd kept tabs on the household and other members of the Khan family throughout the day. Ritesh Vyas, a friend of Haroon Sharif and a graphic design student at Oxford College of Further Education, gave evidence to the court that on the afternoon before the fire, Sharif had visited his home in Hawthorne Avenue, Headington, and asked him to tint out the rear window of his red Vauxhall Cavalier. He told the court, He asked me if he could fit a blinder to tint out the back, basically. We measured the blind, and then I put the blind up for him. The court heard that after some other work had been carried out on the Cavalier's engine, Mr Vias and Sharif took the car out for a drive. As they travelled past the home of Shanaz Khan in Ablet Close, Sharif became agitated. Mr Vias continued to the court. There were some people standing outside Shanaz's house, and as Haroon drove past, he said, They've seen me. Shortly afterwards, the court heard Sharif stopped and made a telephone call from a public telephone box nearby before both headed back to Sharif's home. Early that evening, Sharif had asked Ritesh to leave the room so he could again make a phone call and as Mr Vias returned to the room as the call was finishing, he heard Sharif say, It's hot, it's too hot. Mr Vias then said when he asked Sharif who it was on the phone, he was told it was Sharif's girlfriend Riaz who wanted to come to Oxford. Indeed, only a few hours later, 
Riaz was on her way there, after she and the others in her party had made a brief stop beforehand. Earlier, the court had heard evidence from a cashier at a service station on Stevenage's Broadwater Crescent, John Richardson, who was on duty working the night shift just hours before the fire. Shortly after 11pm, he recalled seeing two cars pull up on the station forecourt, and his co-worker Craig Pretty recalled seeing five men and three women, a mix of white and Asian, in the two vehicles, a blue Fiat Panda and a red Renault. One of the men, a young white male whom he later identified in court as Thomas Liedl, filled a red fuel canister with about £5 worth of petrol, which he paid for before the group left and headed westwards out of the forecourt. Less than four hours later, almost 75 miles away, two of the Khan children were to die horribly. The reason? Bad feeling between the two families had begun almost two years before, in 1995, when the eldest son of the Khan family, 22-year-old Amjad, had begun having a sexual relationship with attractive 21-year-old Fiaz Begum Munshi, the sister of the accused Riaz. Amjad had been studying for an economics degree at Oxford Brooks at the time he met Fiaz, who herself wanted to pursue a career in either law enforcement or as a paralegal and through their relationship, which he kept a deliberate secret from his parents, as it was against Amjad's strict Muslim upbringing, he met Fias's elder sister Riaz and her boyfriend Haroon Sharif. The relationship soon became an intense one, and the lifestyle of the Fias sisters and Sharif, a more westernised outlook than Amjad's own family, began to rub off on him. His studies rapidly began to suffer due to the time he was spending with them, ultimately leading to him abandoning his degree, and he began to embrace a dark side that was totally alien to his upbringing. He became involved with drugs. At first it began with the gradual use of cannabis and amphetamines, but this soon led on to involvement with heroin, which Sharif himself was heavily involved with in dealing. Before long, Amjad had been running favours for Sharif. I'm sure you can imagine, can't you, the odd or do us a favour mate, just drop this off here for these fellas, or just go and collect this for us mate, will you? And so on. This continued until the summer of 1996, when Amjad was arrested in Headington on one of these favours, and charged with possession of heroin with intent to supply. In May of the following year, Amjad pleaded guilty, and was jailed for three and a half years at Oxford Crown Court. So following his arrest, it was then that Amjad's whole secret life came out to his parents, and as devastated as they were upon the shame that their eldest son had brought on the family through his involvement with drugs, they were equally as horrified at his relationship with Fiaz, one that without marriage went strictly against the faith Amjad had been raised upon, and they demanded that for him to begin to make amends, he break off the relationship with Fiaz Munchi completely. At the trial, Mr. Bourne added, They blamed Sharif and the Munshi sisters for their son's downfall. Now Amjad complied with this and told both his family and Fiaz that their relationship was over, news to which she reacted badly, as by all accounts she was deeply in love with Amjad by this time. Trying to get him to change his mind, Fiaz would make endless trips to visit Amjad up in Oxfordshire's HMP Bullingdon, 
where he was serving his sentence, and on one of these visits, Fiaz, his sister Riaz, and Harun Sharif arrived at the prison, but were told they could not see Amjad, as his family were already there visiting him. They were about to leave the prison car park, when they came face to face with Amjad's mother Mafuz, his eldest sister Shinaz and younger sister Amun, and his younger brother Majid, who were themselves just leaving from their visit with him. It was Amun who noticed Sharif and the two girls, warmly waving to the person she knew as a close friend of her elder brother. Following the visit, by now furious with the Munchi family, blaming them completely for her son's downfall and that they were still seeing Amjad, Mafuz, Anis, Majid and Shinaz Khan first went around to Harun Sharif's house in Moral Avenue to tell him to keep away from their son, before heading on to the Munshi house in Oxford's Freelands Road later that day to speak to the family. Shinaz Khan was later to claim, The purpose was to let one of the elders know that Fias was visiting my brother at the prison and would not leave him alone and to come to an agreement to leave Amjad alone. Now, accounts differ as to the severity and party of instigation of what happened following this, but Riaz Munshi was to later claim that the Khan family shouted insults at her sister, calling her a filthy slag and demanding in no uncertain terms that she keep away from Amjad. This caused at first verbal retaliation, before a scuffle between the Munshi and the Khan sisters broke out, which developed into a serious fight plenty of hair pulling, nail scratching, and at least at one point, both Munchi sisters on top of Anis Khan, punching her about the face and body. The fight was finally broken up by Majid Khan, who's always the sensible one, and as Riaz Munchi was pulled off Anis, she snarled at the Khan family, You are fucking playing with fire. Police were contacted following this incident, although by which party it's not clear, and attended the scene, but no further action was taken. But following this, the Khan family were now marked by the Munchi family, in particular Fiaz, who was already seething and displaying a burning desire for revenge against them, for a perceived turning of Amjad against her, and there, in her own words, meddling by sticklers of the Muslim faith. The court was to later hear that following this fight, the Khans then started spreading rumours in the Cowley area about the Munshi sisters, saying that they were, I quote, prostitutes or no better than prostitutes. And angry about this, as you would be, I'm sure, in retaliation the Munshi sisters began making rude gestures at female members of the Khan family in the street whenever they saw them. They'd drive past the Khan house at all hours of the day and night, playing loud music, and would endlessly call the landline of the house, both women shouting obscenities and abuse, to whoever would answer the phone there. Then, on Monday June the 9th, 1997, just over a month after Amjad had been imprisoned, Riaz and Fiaz were out shopping together in Oxford's Westgate shopping centre, when they saw Shinaz and Nazmin Khan sat in the food court there, having lunch. Unable to just walk by, the impulsive Fiaz threw a can of coke that struck Nazmin, following it up by calling the Khan sisters filthy slags. When approached by Shinaz, Fiaz was not for backing down and attacked her, 
leading to yet another fight breaking out. Now by all accounts this fight was worse than the previous one and led to passers-by having to pull the battling women apart until security staff and then police could arrive. The Munshi sisters were both arrested and charged with assault following the fight and as a result of this, on top of the earlier fight, the rumours about their private lives and the public harassment of the Khan family, the Munshi sisters were thrown out of their home by their brothers who were angered at their refusal to conform to a traditional Muslim lifestyle and who accused them of bringing dishonour to the family. Following a furious row with one of their brothers, the Munshi sisters headed over to Letchworth in Hertfordshire where they briefly stayed with Harun Sharif who by that time himself had been forced to flee Oxford for a time. That's the kind of territory that goes with being involved in drug dealing, that is, eh? And was staying with his cousins Muhammad and Hak Nawaz at their home in Letchworth's Ridge Road, before the sisters were offered a place at a women's refuge in Stevenage. But this distance, this cost, didn't give them food for thought and make them think, yeah, it's caused enough trouble this has, and over what? It didn't make them think that for a second. By now, hell-bent on making the Khan family pay, Fiaz in particular was still relentless in her harassment, and the telephone calls to the Khans continued in earnest. By this time, Fiaz had also begun a relationship with Hak Nawaz, and before long, he himself had joined what had very much clearly become her cause. And soon, the harassment by telephone and loud music Bombarding the family with obscenities, even very public, very full-on fights weren't enough. It was time to go further. When exactly the events of the early hours of the 26th of August 1997 were decided was unclear, but certainly by that time, the intention was to always cause the Khan family either severe harm or loss, or perhaps even both which was described best by the person who was described as the trial's star witness, 21-year-old Sunder Kutan. Convicted fraudster Kutan, who was facing no charges relating to the fire, and who also hailed from Letchworth, told the trial that he'd decided to give evidence against the six accused because killing children, he said, I quote, takes the biscuit. He admitted travelling from Stevenage to Oxford on the night of the fire with the six accused, Fiaz Munshi, and the girlfriend of Mohammed Nawaz, 19-year-old Sarah Moon, but claimed that he had no awareness of their intention to start the blaze. The group had travelled in two cars to Oxford, staying in touch with their mobile phones, for the perceived purpose of what Kutan described as a mission. He told the court that he didn't understand the inclusion of Swanton and Lidl on this mission as they were both white, while the rest of the group was Asian. Kutan furthered, I asked Hack, why are you bringing the two white geezers if you called me? Hack did say to me that Eggie and Swanton were doing their own little mission. What we call a mission is going to beat someone up. Doesn't he sound a delight? He then told the jury that there'd been a second mission planned for earlier the same evening involving the accused Riaz Munchi and his sister Fiaz. The Munchi sisters, the court heard, had armed themselves with craft knives and the plan, Kutan claimed, was for them to visit the home of Shanaz Khan in Oxford's Ablett Close because the Munchi sisters bore a particular grudge against her out of all the Khan family 
and wanted to attack her. When cross-examined by the defence about the statements he'd given to police, extracts from which were read to the court, Kutan agreed that he had said, I quote, It was decided that it would be better to get the girl when the lights were out and she was least expecting it. Fiaz said she wanted to grab her hair, slice her face and slice her fingers off. He then added in the statement that Hak Nawaz then told him to persuade the Munshi sisters to call off this mission, saying, Hak told the girls to leave it because with five blokes in the house, it was just too heavy. He then recounted to the court the events of the night of the fire, as we've heard, and how he had witnessed Swanton and Needle get out of the rear of the other vehicle to the one he was in, remove a red petrol canister and fill two empty tango bottles with fuel, heading towards a house that earlier they'd driven past and that had been pointed out by Fiaz Munchie. When she'd done this, he claimed Hak Nawaz had said, The lights are on, let's give it a while. They'd then driven around for a period, before parking up a short distance, about a mile or so away from the scene, and here had met up with Haroon Sharif, before returning to the house a short time later, following a phone call from him to find it in darkness. Kutan claimed that he could not see the property clearly from where the vehicle he was in was parked, the one driven by Hak Nawaz, but a minute later, he witnessed Swanton and Lidl running hell for leather past the parked car, which Hak Nawaz then started, and then saw the vehicle driven by Mohammed Nawaz collect both of them a short distance of a few streets away. When they'd arrived back in Hertfordshire, the entourage had stopped and parked up to discuss what had happened, and knowing that due to the previous conflict between the Khan family and the Munchies that they would each be visited by police, to decide the story that they were going to tell them when questioned. Kutan recalled, Swanton and Lidl had singed eyebrows, smelt a petrol and were laughing. He claimed that first when they'd stopped, Hak Nawaz had rewarded them for starting the blaze by giving them each a can of coke. Kutan said, Hak passed one can of coke to Lidl and one can to Swanton. Swanton then said, I lit the match and all I felt was pressure. Then I fell back. They were laughing about it. Lidl said, Yeah, there was a lot of pressure. I picked Alan up and we ran. Hack said, That was good, boys. We'll meet you back at home. Kutan furthered that Lidl, who he referred to as Eggy, had also claimed that he had heard people screaming from the Khan's burning home as they fled. During cross-examination, Michael Austin Smith QC for the defence accused Kutan of fabricating this story to justify his role as star witness for the prosecution, adding that Kutan was making up his evidence. Mr Austin Smith said, You are quite unscrupulous and prepared to lie when it suits you. You tried to fool the police and this jury. To save your own skin so you were not in the dock too, you decided to be this star witness. Kutan insisted that he was not fabricating any evidence whatsoever and told the jury how deeply he was affected when he later saw photos of the murdered children in the blackened window of their home following the fatal fire. When asked why he didn't report this immediately if he was so deeply affected, Kutan replied that when he'd returned to his Hertfordshire home from Oxford on the night of the fire, he had told his sister's boyfriend about what had happened 
Kutan told the court, I told him that I'd been to Oxford and that there'd been a house on fire. He said to me, this is heavy. The best thing to do is report it to the police straight away. Kutan added that if he had known there was a plan to torch someone's house, he would not have joined in, saying, I would not have gone around to some innocent person's house to blow up their home. Yet he kept quiet and didn't speak to police about the murders until December the 11th, several months later, when he volunteered information to a custody officer as he was being questioned at Hitchin Police Station about offences not connected to the fire. When asked why it had taken so long, he explained, I had to think about Hack and Mo Nawaz because I treated them like my own brothers. I did not want to grass. Had to think of them, but on the other hand, two kids were dead. I could not live with it. My fucking heart bleeds for you, mate. It really does. Listening to this, only a few feet away, Mohammed and Mafuz Khan and several other family members were sat in the public gallery just yards away from the six accused in the dock with only a plastic screen separating them. When Mafuz Khan heard Kutan's explanation, she broke down and her husband Mohammed placed a comforting arm around her before quietly wiping away his own tears with a handkerchief. Not one of the defendants glanced once at the Khan family. Now this story does sound like somebody desperately trying to distance themselves from a life sentence, doesn't it? But it was supported in part by the testimony of 19-year-old Sarah Moon, who was with the six accused and Sunder Kutan on the night of the fire, travelling with her boyfriend, Mohammed Nawaz, Alan Swanson and Thomas Liedl in Nawaz's Red Reynolds. Speaking from the witness box, she told the court that she believed the purpose of the visit to Oxford was merely for the accused Riaz Munchi and his sister Fiaz to fight some other girls, and that she merely thought that Swanton and Liedl were going to give someone, I quote, a scare when they got out of the car with the petrol containers. Michael Austin Smith asked her, Something was said to the effect, we want to give them a fright. Moon replied, I do not remember who said it or where it was said, but it was something along those lines. She then told of her horror when she realised that Liedl and Swanton had in fact set fire to a house, but claimed that she believed at the time that the house that had been set on fire was in fact empty. She told the court, I saw Alan and Eggie running past very fast. I looked behind me and saw huge flames climbing up the side of the house. She described how moments before, She'd seen Swanson and Liedl remove a red petrol canister and two plastic drink bottles from the boot of the car before heading towards 156 Magdalen Road. When the pair returned to the car a few streets away, she continued, both smelled strongly of petrol and were coughing, adding that Liedl and Swanson looked shocked when they returned to the car. You could see the scare on their faces, she said. Were they laughing? Mr Austin Smith asked Moon. She replied, Oh no, not then. I asked what on earth was going on, and there was no reply from them. There was a very strong smell of petrol, and I opened the window. Moon then told the jury that when members of the gang met up during the early hours back in Hertfordshire, they swore each other to silence. 
When asked by Julian Bourne what was discussed at the meeting, she replied, It was basically just how shocked everyone was. Hack was saying that he was shocked about it, and all of us should not talk about it to anyone. Now Moon was later arrested along with the other defendants and agreed to volunteer this information to police in a third police interview, resulting in no charges being brought against her. When the defendants themselves came to speak to the court, the finger of blame was very strongly pointed at Swanton, Legal and Haroon Sharif as being what he was later referred to in court as the general behind the fire plot. As the majority of them tried to blame these and subsequently distanced themselves from culpability. Hak Nawaz told the jury that he'd been at Sharif's home in Moral Avenue when Amjad's mother had called to tell him to stay away from Amjad and had overheard the conversation. Although he admitted he was not pleased by what Mrs Khan was saying and later had a phone conversation with Shanaz Khan about growing tension between his family and the Khans, he bore no grudge against the Khan family. He told the court, I said to Shinaz that I'd heard her mother saying all sorts about me and I didn't like what was being said. And Shinaz told me that I'd misunderstood everything her mother was saying. Robin Gray QC, defending, asked Haknawaz how the telephone conversation ended. As far as you were concerned, was the problem over or not? It was all over with, Hack replied. But it was established that he'd lied to police when he gave his first witness statement a few days after the fire, in which he had claimed that he and his girlfriend Fiaz had stayed at his father's house on the night of the fire, adding in the statement, I have never been to Oxford with Riaz or Fiaz. But whilst on remand the jury heard, a few weeks before the start of the trial, Nawaz decided to change his story when he learned his fellow accused Thomas Liedl had given a statement detailing the events on the night of the murders. Robin Gray asked Hak Nawaz, When did you decide to come clean about being in Oxford that night? Nawaz replied, I was on remand a few weeks before the trial and I wanted to tell the truth. He then claimed that he and Haroon Sharif had a private conversation just hours after the fire. Michael Perth QC, defending, asked him, What did he tell you about the fire? Nawaz replied, He explained that he had asked Alan and Eggy to scare someone for him, but things had gone wrong. He said that they were only supposed to do the front door, not the whole house. Mr Perth then asked Nawaz, Did he know that a child had died in the fire when he spoke to you that afternoon? Nawaz replied, Yes, he told me. When his turn to give evidence came, Alan Swanton told the court that he and Thomas Liedl were asked to set fire to the Khan's terraced home as a favour to Haroon Sharif. Swanton told the court that when he was first asked to start the fire by Sharif, he told him, no way. But when he and Liedl arrived at the Khan's house, hours after smoking cannabis as Liedl delivered pizzas, they decided there and then on the spot to torch the home instead of a wheelie bin outside because Sharif had told them there was no one in at the Khan's home. When asked why by Michael Austin Smith, Swanton replied, In a way, I thought it was to prove to Haroon that I could do it. 
Now the jury had moments before witnessed the Khan family home bursting into flames on footage taken from a security video at the Philosopher and Firkin pub on the Cowley Road. And the black and white film showed a shadowy figure running away from the Khan's house at the time that the fire was set. Swanson admitted that this may have been him captured on the security video and further the two plastic tango bottles discovered in a nearby telephone box used as petrol containers were found to have Swanson's fingerprints on them. Mr Austin Smith then asked him Is it correct that you and Thomas Liedl set fire to 156 Magdalen Road? Yes, Swanson replied. Mr Austin Smith what thought did you give to people being in that house? Swanton I didn't give it any thought because I was told there was nobody in. Mr Austin Smith When did you first realise there were people in the house? Swanton Just after I set light to it because I then heard a scream. Michael Austin Smith You now know two people died in the fire that you set. How do you feel about it? Swanton I feel sick with myself for what I've done because I didn't go there to hurt anybody but I have done. I wasn't aware that the petrol would cause such a devastating blaze when poured through the letterbox. I mean, seriously? Swanson told the jury that he and Liedl planned to give each other false alibis that contained the lie that he and Liedl had not been in Oxford on the night of the murders and had in fact been staying at a relative's house. To explain away the fingerprints, Swanton originally planned to tell police that he, Liedl and Sundar Kutan had visited Oxford a week before the fire and he had discarded the plastic bottles in the Cowley Road area then. Now this shower of bollocks was the plan until they decided to change this story and come clean because of, I quote, his conscience, admitting that he and Liedl did start the fire two weeks before the trial started. Christopher Hotton QC, the counsel defending Haroon Sharif, asked Swanton, I put to you that when you were faced with the inevitability that responsibility for these two deaths would come to your door, you went for the next best option, manslaughter, not murder. Is that right? Swanton replied, yes. Mr Hotton then told Swanton, What the jury has heard are different lies from the ones you planned to tell originally. No, Swanton replied. Trial judge Mr Justice Jowett then asked the defendant, had you realised before then that a false account would not wash, or was there some other reason? Swanton replied, I could not take it on my conscience any more. Riaz Munchi, in her turn in the box, told the court that she and her sister Fiaz decided to adopt a Western lifestyle which their family did not approve of. In a statement given to police shortly after the fire, Riaz revealed how years before, she began to date Sharif in secret, but when she was 23, the jury heard, her brother tried to force her into an arranged marriage. She had told police in her statement, I was informed by my brother that I would be marrying someone in Pakistan. The purpose was to get a visa prepared for my husband to come to Britain. I refused to acknowledge him and continued to see Haroon. By now, I was in love with him. Riaz Munshi furthered in his statement that her relationship was good with the Khan family at first, but deteriorated when an argument started 
because the Munshis claimed the Khans were spreading rumours about them. She then told the jury of the fight she and her sister had been involved in, and that her sister Fiaz, who especially blamed the Khan family for their having been thrown out of their home in Freelands Road, insisted that she join her on a trip to Oxford to fight Shanaz Khan, which Riaz said she did not agree with. She told the court, I used to tell her, let's forget about it, let's get on with our lives and that, but she wouldn't, she was very violent and aggressive, she was very mouthy, she doesn't like taking abuse or anything from anyone. And it seemed that she would stoop to blackmail also, so hell-bent was she on destroying the Khans. Riaz told the court that to get her to accompany her, Fiaz had told her, If you don't come back to Oxford today, I will inform our brothers of where you're living. In her first statement to police, however, Riaz had said that on the night of the fatal fire, she was staying at the home of Hak Nawaz's mother, where she remained all night. She also said to Detective Constable George Minahan, who was taking her statement, what if someone was just the driver? However, she refused to elaborate on what she'd said. But far from painting herself out as someone only admitting at a push that they were there, and then only being there under duress, the court was reminded of the previous fights that both sisters had been arrested for, the testimony from Sunder Kutan, which claimed that Riaz and his sister both had knives on them on the evening, ready to inflict harm and disfigurement, and were even informed that after fellow defendant Alan Swanson gave evidence earlier in the trial, she had even attacked co-accused Hak Nawaz, having to be pulled off him as they left court. Now pressed to explain this, Riaz told the jury, Hak started laughing at me and he winked at Swanson. I was upset. We're on a murder trial. There are two kids that have died. The family sits in the public gallery crying. We go behind there and they start laughing. Haroon Sharif, meanwhile, denied everything that was put to him. He claimed that the first he'd heard of the fire was later in the day when Amjad Khan, the brother of Anuma Majid, who was in Bullingdon prison at the time for heroin dealing, had called Riaz Munshi's mobile phone and said his sister had been killed in a fire. Sharif said, I said to him, are you talking stupid? I couldn't believe what he was saying. Amjad had been cut off, but had then called back and spoke again to Riaz Munshi. When she'd finished the call, Sharif said, she was shocked and upset. She started crying. Riaz told me, Fiaz had been weird that morning. Fiaz told her the others had something to do with it. He said that Hak Nawaz had then wanted to speak to him and Riaz and told them to say that he and the others had not been in Oxford that night. Amjad himself had earlier given evidence to the trial that just two days after the fire, he'd been visited in prison by Sharif and Hak Nawaz, who had each claimed that they could not believe what had happened and that Sharif, who had looked upset, had even told him, we'll be getting the bastards responsible. Denying that he was instead acting as a lookout in Oxford on the evening of the fire, as the prosecution claimed, to explain away the extensive mobile phone traffic that was later tied to his handset, Sharif claimed he was instead just cruising around the city with his friend, 
who was looking for some wheels to steal from a metro. He admitted that he'd talked to Riaz several times on the phone that evening, but the conversations had nothing to do with the fire the court heard. Sharif then received a phone call from his girlfriend at 3.08am, again as we said before, about the exact time of the fire, to say that she wanted to be picked up from the McDonald's restaurant in Headington and that he'd driven out there to collect her. They then returned to his parents' home in Morrill Avenue, where they both sneaked in and slept in his bedroom for the night, before creeping back out the next morning. Michael Austin Smith accused Sharif of planning the attack with his girlfriend Riaz Munchie because they both resented the Khan family. Instead of being out nicking wheels from metros as he'd claimed, he'd actually watched the Khan house constantly throughout the day and evening, reporting dozens of times back to the group travelling from Hertfordshire as to the comings and goings there. He told them exactly where to park up to meet him, and the barrister then accused him of misleading the group by telling them that no one was in fact at home at 156 Magdalen Road, whilst all the time knowing that several members of the Khan family were there and were at risk. He told Sharif that he had recruited, I quote, two stupid white boys to do his work for him and misled them all, controlling them all from a distance, furthering, you're the ruthless person behind this, aren't you? The general, being ruthless with your troops to get them to do your bidding. You gave them their marching orders in Cheney Lane. Sharif replied, that's untrue. Mr Austin Smith said he was not suggesting that Sharif had intended anyone to die, but that he thought the family would be able to escape when the house was set on fire. Sharif said, no, that's untrue. Now following the lengthy summing up by the separate defence counsels of each of the accused, and I know we've skipped from name to name, but imagine six of them each have their own defence counsel, so it's easier to just refer as the defence. So following the lengthy summing up by the separate defence counsels of each of the accused, the jury was sent out to consider its verdict, which we shall hear about in the next episode as it's a complex tale that warranted a double episode this opener is, and there is a fair bit more to go in it yet, so I'll save the usual wrap-up crap that I do for the next part, which will be coming to you next time, and I look forward to you joining me for. Or, depending on when you're listening to this, of course, it's already out. Now I know it's a horrific tale this one, isn't it? But when are they ever really pleasant ones on a true crime show, I ask you. I thank you guys very much for joining me here as always. I look forward to you joining me for part two of the opening case of series six, The Burning. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys all good and safe times. Keep your masks on and keep yourselves in, folks. And I shall speak to you all very soon. Take care, guys, and goodbye for now.